the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is back this week. We're just, just a little bit off this past week having you gone, so welcome back. Glad to have you with us. Um, today on the program, we're going to talk with William G. Highland. He is the author of, he's an historian, and author of George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. Now, it's a name that may be familiar to many of us, but we may not know the history. Chances are we don't. Uh, but I found it absolutely fascinating. The book's about 450, 500 pages long, but just uh, full of um, all kinds of information that links him to all of the major developments at the founding of this constitutional republic. I think you'll find it interesting if uh, you are a um, an avid historian yourself, or at least enjoy reading about it. Anyway, he'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour, so we're looking forward to that. Well, happy um, post-Mother's Day to those of you uh, who are mothers and those who struggle through Mother's Day. I hope you found joy in the midst of it, celebrating others. That always helps to relieve some of the heartache that one might feel. So I uh, hope you had a, a great uh, great weekend. I did a couple of things. I had the opportunity to be a part of the um, Union Gospel Missions uh, tea for their Life Change for Women and Children and heard some incredible stories of women who have gone through the program and the, the life change that they have experienced. That that phrase seems such an understatement when you hear the details of how God has worked in the hearts of, uh, of these women and restored them to their families and uh, through the work of the Union Gospel Mission that many KPDQ listeners support. So had a great time uh, hanging out with my friends there. And then in the uh, later in that same evening, the uh, Portland Singing Christmas Tree had the first in the uh, two installments of the hymn sing for the spring. And oh my goodness, I, I say it every time, but I think this year may have been the best so far. Thoroughly enjoyed um, singing with the choir, hearing from the choir, and singing with this large congregation at New Hope Church this past weekend. want to remind you that there is a second opportunity that's coming up this uh, next Saturday, the 18th. That's going to be our West Side Hymn Sing. Uh, it's going to be at Southwest Bible Church, 6 o'clock p.m. There's also the prepaid chicken dinner that starts at 4.30. And if you're interested in more information about that, you can phone them at the um, Singing Christmas Tree office or go to the website, singingchristmastree.org. We'll talk more about that as we get closer to the Saturday uh, date, but wanted to just give you a heads up, still an opportunity. The event is free, but you do need a ticket just to make sure there are enough seats for everybody who wants to come and play a part in it all. We're going to start out with some of the headlines for the last um, couple of days, beginning with House Republican leaders on Sunday calling on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to take action against Representative Shadi, Shil, let's get this right, Rashida Talab, uh, the Democrat from Michigan, for controversial comments she made about the Holocaust during a podcast. There's always a kind of a calming feeling, she said. I tell folks when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, their human dignity, their existence in many ways. 
have been uh, wiped out and some people's passports. She was speaking during an appearance on the most recent episode of Yahoo News podcast, Skullduggery, and just um, uh, all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy and the horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. Now, this is in her statement. I think there are two things to be said. Number one, um, what she was talking about, it seems to me, was that she felt good about the Palestinians making room for the uh, is uh, the Israeli state. What she got wrong was the history. The Palestinians did not make way. They essentially allied with um, Adolf Hitler and um, were moved from their land against their will in order for a Jewish state to be to resume there. But nonetheless, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise called the, the comments twisted and disgusting, referring to the phrase, I feel a sense of calming uh, when I think about the Holocaust. House Speaker Pelosi and House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, uh, he, he urged them to finally take action against Representative Tlaib and other members of the Democratic caucus who are spreading vile anti-Semitism. That's a quote. Tlaib is the first Palestinian-American woman to be elected to Congress. She's been accused of anti-Semitism several times since taking office in January. Her spokesman accused the Republican leaders of right-wing extremism of taking her words out of context to incite hate. Well, Tlaib vowed to not be silenced. Policing my words, twisting and turning them to ignite vile attacks on me will not work. Well, her words pretty much stood alone, whether you understood or misunderstood them and recognized the the flaw of history. But Pelosi was facing criticism from some Democrats for allowing a Texas imam uh, with a history of anti-Israel comments to deliver the noon prayer in the House of Representatives last week as well. So the back and forth continues. Meanwhile, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham told Sunday Morning Futures that he's working to declassify a sensitive document that definitively proves that authorities knew the Steele dossier, which the FBI used to justify the secret surveillance of a former Trump aide, lacked any substantial independent cooperation. Graham also previewed legislation he's going to introduce later this week to halt what he called the perfect storm of illegal immigration that now constitutes an invasion at the southern border and predicted that 90 percent of illegal immigration from Central America would soon come to an end under his plan. That's expected on Wednesday. Former Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman uh, formally um, uh, pled guilty earlier today in Boston Federal Court in the college admissions scandal that revealed an elaborate cheating scam involving several wealthy parents and their privileged children. Huffman agreed to plead guilty last month. She was one of the 11 defendants charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest uh, services mail fraud who agreed to plead guilty. Huffman has been accused of paying some $15,000 disguised as a tax-deductible charitable donation so her daughter could take part in an apparently rigged college entrance exam. She said earlier today her daughter had no idea that this had been done on her behalf. More than four dozen people have been charged in the nationwide scam, which is alleged to have placed students in top-tier schools like Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, and the University of Southern California, UCLA, and the University of Texas. Actress Lori Laughlin and her fashion designer husband, Massimo uh, Guillermo, or something like that, are also charged in the scam but have not reached any plea deals and have not uh, pled guilty. 
Uh, Saudi Arabia said Monday two of its oil tankers were damaged in sabotage attacks in the Gulf as tensions soared in the region, already shaken by the standoff between the United States and Iran. And the Pentagon has approved a plan to spend an additional $1.5 billion to build 80 more miles of wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan approved the relocation of funds, which were originally earmarked to support the Afghan security forces and other projects to help pay for the wall along the southern border. And a new study from the Computational Journalism Lab of Northwestern, uh, at Northwestern rather, found that many of Google's top hits uh, for news searches came from just a handful of left-leaning sources. Their data showed that 86% of Google's top stories came from only 20 news sources. Just three dominated the coverage, with 23% of all impressions counted. CNN with 10.9%, the New York Times with 6.5%, and the Washington Post 5.6% as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back momentarily. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that there's a great opportunity for women to come together around a program called Better Together. There are three ways you can watch Better Together. You can, of course, watch it 1030 a.m. weekdays, uh, Right on TBN. You can also download the TBN app or you can visit bettertogether.tv and register to watch anytime. Today's program and this whole week, they're focusing on mothers. Uh, today, they talked about a mother's heart. Who are you called to mentor? Tomorrow, they're going to talk about adopting the heart of God, uh, the, the virtue and value of natural and spiritual adoption. It's part of a conversation that women are engaged in as we consider the challenges of being faithful to our commitment to Christ and the roles that we carry all at the same time. So let me encourage you, if you haven't already, tune in to Better Together. If the schedule doesn't quite work, check out these other two options, and you'll have an opportunity not only to hear the current program, but to look back at some of the uh, the programs that have already aired. This is the first one, uh, program that TBN has produced by women for women. It's featuring an all-female cast, a panel of women. It changes from week to week. Uh, And you're going to hear from folks whose names you would recognize, whose music you might enjoy listening to. But these are women, just like you and I, uh, that have uh, the challenges of living out their faith in the 21st century. So this week, they're focusing on motherhood, whether that is biological motherhood or having a mother's heart in other aspects, finding your voice, finding your purpose, um, overcoming. These are subjects that are coming in the uh, the weeks to come. So let me encourage you to check out Better Together. Again, 1030 a.m. Pacific time on TBN. You can download the TBN app or go visit to bettertogether.tv, register to watch any time. That's a good program. Check it out. By the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Winding my way through some of the headlines today before we get into the meteor stuff, but Broward County, Florida, where 17 people were killed last year in a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, will not allow its public school to arm their teachers, despite a law that was signed by the governor, Ron DeSantis, this week that allows teachers trained to carry firearms to do so. And male-to-female transgender powerlifter Mary Gregory has been stripped of several women's championship titles after the Powerlifting Federation determined that Gregory was not eligible to compete as a female, being a male. And the U.S. Postal Service lost more than $2 billion during the second quarter of the fiscal year, putting it on track to finish the current year more than $7 billion in the red. 
way worse than the nearly $4 billion in losses it posted last year. And the Department of Energy has proposed new regulations for light bulbs that would eliminate efficiency standards for half the bulbs on the market. Washington and Colorado passed bills this month designed to backstop the Obama-era standards if the Energy Department proceeds to roll them back. And half a dozen other states are considering similar legislation. Vermont passed such a law as soon as President Trump was elected. We'll keep our eye on that. And after two years in the White House, the Trump administration has decided to execute a plan of to purge 200,000 applications for VA health care uh, caused by known administrative errors within VA's enrollment process and enrollment system. Probably uh, rather problems that had already been documented by the Office of the Inspector General in 2015 and 2017. This, by the way, is 2019. And state governments are on course to virtually eliminate abortion access in large chunks in the Deep South and Midwest. Ohio and Kentucky also have passed heartbeat laws. Missouri's Republican-controlled legislature is considering one. Their hope is that a more uh, conservative U.S. Supreme Court will approve, spelling the end of the constitutional right to abortion. And on this day in 1981, Pope John Paul II is shot and seriously wounded in St. Peter's Square by Turkish assailant uh, uh, Mehmet Ali Agka. And on this day in 1973, in tennis's first so-called Battle of the Sexes, Bobby Riggs defeats Margaret Court 6-2, 6-1 in Ramona, California. Billie Jean King would soundly defeat Riggs at the Houston Astrodome in September. And on this day in 1918, the first U.S. airmail stamp costing 24 cents and featuring a picture of a Curtis JN4 biplane was publicly issued. Oh, remember back in the day, of course, this was 1918, 24 cents for a, um, an airmail air stamp. Consider that in view of what we pay now. Former President Jimmy Carter is recovering from a, a Georgia hospital um, after he underwent surgery to repair a broken hip suffered in a fall at his home on Monday morning. A statement from the Atlanta-based Carter Center said the 94-year-old fell while leaving to um, go turkey hunting and underwent successful surgery to repair his hip at the uh, medical center. President Carter said his main concern is that turkey season ends this week and he has not reached his limit. <laughs> Carter Center spokeswoman uh, said he hopes the state of Georgia will allow him to roll over the unused limit to next year. Carter became the oldest living ex-president in March. He also has uh, outlived the, or uh, rather lived the longest after leaving office with January 20th of this year, marking 38 years since he was succeeded by President Ronald Reagan. In August of 2015, Carter announced that doctors had found melanoma in his brain and liver. He underwent radiation treatment, announced that December that he was free of cancer and he's still kicking. Oh, and by the way, the Blazers won that thing, you know, whatever that that thing they won. (laughs) Well, they tell us the schedule for the Western Conference Finals is now out and the Portland Trailblazers are going to open the best of seven series on Tuesday night in Oakland. All the games will be at 6 p.m. and you can uh, watch them on ESPN. Every game between the Blazers and the uh, defending champion Golden State Warriors begins at 6. Every game will be broadcast on ESPN. You can also listen to the game. I won't mention where, but it's... um, 6 o'clock p.m. the game start. Add 20 to that, and that's where you can hear it on an AM station in Portland. The schedule is uh, Tuesday night, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Again, all on ESPN and heard elsewhere on a station. Well, U.S. stocks tumbled uh, today with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling 617 points, recovering from a loss of over 700 points early 
uh, afternoon as trade tensions and rhetoric uh, between the U.S. and China escalate. The Dow and the S&P 500 lost over 2 percent, marking the worst start to May since 1970. The Nasdaq Composite lost over 3 percent, the worst start uh, to May since the year 2000. On Friday, Chinese Vice Premier Liu said trade talks between China and the U.S., which lasted for just two hours, went fairly well and that talks would continue. This as the United States increased tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese exports to 25 percent from 10 percent that same day. Well, after trade talks broke up later in the day, U.S. officials said they were preparing to expand those tariffs to cover another $300 billion of goods, covering most imports from China. The back and forth between the two nations is wreaking havoc in global equity markets, with some investors speculating that a deal may not happen at all. Elsewhere around the globe, shares retreated in Europe and in Asia. While much of the mainstream media are wringing their collective hands over the president's uh, igniting a trade war by raising new tariffs against $200 billion in uh, Chinese goods, the reality is the U.S. has been in a long-running economic war with Beijing. The only difference is that Trump has decided to lead the U.S. on the offensive. As Mark Alexander noted in a recent column in the three decades old trade war uh, with China, Donald Trump is the first president to exercise the political courage to fight back. He notes further that one big advantage they have is the relentless left media opposition. Thus, the Chinese are able to target tariff countermeasures to do the most political damage to Republicans with the support of the uh, opposing party and the media. Senator Marco Rubio praised Trump's action, stating this is the first administration ever in certain Uh, Certainly modern history that's actually taken these guys on. Even Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer agreed with the president, arguing we have to be strong with China. We ought to hang tough. Well, predictably, China has responded in a tit for tat manner by raising tariffs on an additional 60 billion dollars in various U.S. imports effective June 1st. In other words, it doesn't look like either side is going to back down anytime soon. Even so, Beijing is feeling more of the immediate economic pressure. Its uh, economy continues to slow as various companies look to relocate their manufacturing outside of China. Well, hopefully Trump's actions will press China into ending its abusive trade practices and in turn usher in a fair and balanced trade agreement between the world's two largest economies. And the big question is, um, how much pain is the United States willing to take before uh, blinking. By way, um, by the way, Beijing is increasing their tariffs on more than 5,000 products, says uh, to as high as 25 percent. Uh, duties on some other products will increase to 20 percent. Those rates will rise from either 10 or 5 percent uh, previously. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with William G. Highland, author of George Mason, the founding father we uh, who gave us the Bill of Rights. That's coming up in our next, our second hour. Well, the New York Times no doubt considers it quite a coup to have obtained and published President Donald Trump's tax return information from 85 to 94, but doing so violated Trump's rights under federal law to the confidentiality of his tax returns. Thus writes Hans von Spakovsky. He says the Times, which reported that Trump's businesses lost $1.17 billion during the 10-year period, has no more right to Trump's tax returns than it has to mine or those of any other 
um, American confidentiality as the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals held in 1991 and U.S. versus Ritchie is essential to maintaining a workable tax system. Taxpayer privacy is fundamental to a tax system that relies on self-reporting since it protects sensitive or otherwise personal information. And then judge, now Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1986 in another case when she served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Federal Law 26 U.S.C., and I won't mention all of the other designations, makes it a felony for any federal employee to disclose tax returns or return information. Infractions are punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine as high as $250,000 under the Alternative Fines Act. Regardless of the accuracy or inaccuracy of the New York Times story, tax returns themselves, as well as tax return information, such as these IRS transcriptions, which are a summary of the tax returns, are protected from disclosure by federal law. And the provision applies to private individuals as well as government employees, a fact that should be considered by the New York Times uh, source. Well, according to the newspaper, it did not actually obtain Trump's tax returns, but uh, printouts from his official Internal Revenue Tax transcripts with the figures from his federal tax form, the 1040, from someone uh, who had legal access to them. Well, the Times quotes a, uh, a lawyer for the president, Charles Harder, as saying that the tax information in the story is demonstrably false and that IRS transcripts, particularly from the days before electronic filing, are notoriously inaccurate. However, that claim is disputed by a former IRS employee now at the uh, Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. Well, the president tweeted on Wednesday in response to the Times story, real estate developers in the 1980s and 90s, more than 30 years ago, and I'm not sure why those are relevant, were entitled to massive write-offs and depreciation, which would, if one was actively building, show losses and tax losses in almost all cases. Much was non-monetary, sometimes considered tax shelter. You would uh, get it by building or even buying. You also uh, wanted to show losses for tax purposes. Almost all real estate developers did and often renegotiate with banks. It was uh, sport. Additionally, the very old information put out is a highly inaccurate fake news job, news hit job, he went on to say. Well, regardless of uh, the, the, again, accuracy or inaccuracy of the story, tax returns themselves, as well as tax information, uh, such as the transcripts, uh, are protected uh, from disclosure. Could the editors and the reporters of the New York Times be prosecuted for publishing the information? Well, Section 3 of the law makes it a felony for any person who receives an illegally disclosed tax return or return information to publish that return or that information. But it's unknown if the bar on publication by a media organization could survive a First Amendment challenge. What we do know is that in previous incidents, the government did not attempt to prosecute the publisher of tax return information. In 2014, the IRS agreed to pay the National Organization for Marriage $50,000 to settle a lawsuit after an IRS clerk illegally disclosed that organization's tax returns. The clerk gave the tax return to Matthew Meisel, a former employee of Bain and Company, who gave it to the Human Rights Campaign, a political opponent of the National Organization for Marriage. The tax return was then posted on the Human Rights Campaign website and published by the Huffington Post. And although the IRS paid to settle the lawsuit, none of the individuals or organizations involved in the illegal disclosure and publication were prosecuted. So that gives you some idea of what's likely not going to happen in this case. If such a prosecution 
were attempted, there is no doubt that a First Amendment challenge would be filed. The courts would have to uh, answer an important question. Are the interests of the government in an effective tax system and that of citizens uh, in maintaining the confidentiality of their financial information outweighed by the First Amendment right of the press and by the public's interest in obtaining financial information of elected officials? Now, again, this is decades uh, old information, uh, so I'm not sure how relevant it is unless they're attempting to demonstrate a pattern. But nonetheless, in the midst of this illegal disclosure to the Times, the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin announced on Monday that he would not comply with the demand of the House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal to provide the committee with copies of tax returns filed by Trump and eight other companies for the last six years. Mnuchin sent the letter to Neal telling him that the Supreme Court has held that the Constitution requires that congressional information demands must reasonably serve a a legitimate legislative purpose. The Treasury Secretary is correct. Numerous court decisions hold that legislative investigations must have a legitimate legislative purpose. Mnuchin says that um, Neal's request lacks such a legitimate purpose. The court decisions um, supporting Mnuchin's decision include a 1957 ruling in Watkins versus the U.S. in which the Supreme Court told the House Un-American Activities Committee that there is no congressional power to expose for the sake of exposure the private affairs of individuals. Well, the slow motion confrontation between the United States and Iran is heating up one year after Washington withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Well, on Sunday, National Security Advisor John Bolton issued a rather terse statement saying... In response to a number of troubling and escalatory indications and warnings, the United States is deploying the USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group and a bomber task force to the U.S. Central Command region to send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime that any attack on the United States' interests or on those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force. The United States is not seeking war with the Iranian regime, but we are fully prepared to respond to any attack, whether by proxy, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or regular Iranian forces. Well, CNN, uh, by the way, end quote, CNN reported that specific and credible intelligence indicated that Iranian forces and proxies were preparing for a possible attack against U.S. personnel or allies in Syria and Iraq or at sea. Intelligence provided by Israel reportedly was at least part of the reason for the warning and the naval redeployment. Well, the carrier strike group had been scheduled to deploy to the Persian Gulf after exercises in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, but it was diverted to expedite its arrival and boost the Pentagon's capabilities for deterring, defending against and retaliating for possible Iranian supported attacks. Well, Secretary of State Pompeo was also diverted, canceling a diplomatic mission to Germany to head to an undisclosed location. He warned that if these actions do, in fact, take place, if they do some third party proxy, a militia group, Hezbollah, we will hold the Iranian leadership directly accountable for that. Well, Iran's Islamist regime historically has used Hezbollah, Iraqi Uh, military uh, groups and Palestinian surrogates to attack its enemies by fighting to the last Arab, as they put it. Well, last month, the Pentagon released an updated assessment that blamed Iran's revolutionary guards for enabling Iraqi uh, proxies forces to kill some 603 American servicemen in Iraq. And just last weekend, Iran uh, backed by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group's provocations that triggered the fiercest military clash between Israel and Hamas in Gaza since the 2014 Gaza war. Again, Iranian proxies. Well, this week's events are the latest in a series of escalations by the U.S. and Iran 
On the 8th of April, the administration designated Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. Iran's president responded by signing a measure that declared all American forces in the Middle East terrorists and labeling the U.S. a state sponsor of terrorism. Then on the 22nd of April, Pompeo announced that Washington was not renewing waivers that allowed eight countries to continue buying Iranian oil after the resumption of U.S. oil sanctions on Iran last November. That action ratcheted up sanctions to unprecedented levels under the current administration's maximum pressure campaign. Well, senior Iranian officials responded by repeating past warnings. Well, the easiest way for Iran to do uh, uh, what they have uh, threatened is to try to block the Straits of Hormuz, that 21-mile-wide uh, waterway at the eastern end of the Gulf, through which flows approximately 30 percent of the world's seaborne oil uh, uh, traffic. Well, the potential Iranian threat to this key a strategic choke point is another reason the U.S. Navy has expedited the deployment of the carrier battle group in the region. Well, Iran's next move may come on the nuclear front. Iranian media have reported that Rouhani will announce the resumption and has now done so of some halted nuclear activities on Wednesday, the first anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal of the 2015 or rather from the 2015 nuclear agreement. It's not clear whether this means Iran will formally withdraw from the agreement, but it could explain why why Pompeo suddenly canceled his visit to Germany. And the back and forth continues where the U.S.-Iran confrontation is heading is a story we certainly will continue to follow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Georgia became the next state to protect unborn children when Governor Brian Kemp signed the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, or LIFE, uh, that will prohibit abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detectable in the womb, which is as early as five or six weeks of pregnancy. The law will become effective on the 1st of January 2020. Well, the LIFE Act, which includes the, an exception for rape, incest and situations when the mother's health is at risk, will replace current Georgia law, which allows abortions up to 20 weeks. At least 15 states have introduced similar heartbeat bills this year, and Georgia now joins Kentucky, Mississippi, and Ohio, which also recently passed six-week abortion bans, and Republican lawmakers in several other states, including Tennessee, South Carolina, and Florida, are considering similar bills. Governor Brian Kemp specifically called the law common sense, despite recent boycott threats from Hollywood actors. We stand up for the innocent and speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, he tweeted on the 29th of March. The legislature's bold action reaffirms our priorities and who we are as a state. We are not like New York or Virginia, the Senate uh, Science and Technology Chairwoman Renee Utman, uh, who sponsored the bill in the Georgia Senate, wrote, We will not throw away children who aren't perfect because all children are perfect in the eyes of God. Well, four months ago, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a law which allows the murder of unborn babies up to the point of birth for any reason and revokes medical care for babies who are born alive after a failed abortion. In response, last Saturday, Focus on the Family Ministry sponsored the largest pro-life event ever held in New York City. The Alive from New York event put the sanctity of human life in front and center in the world's busiest intersection at Times Square. More than 10,000 people attended the show uh, support uh, for protecting the unborn. There was live music, testimonies from many, including three abortion survivors. However, the main event was a live 4D ultrasound performed on Abby Johnson, a former Planned Parenthood director whose story is the inspiration behind the movie Unplanned. This is a baby. 
This right here is a baby, she says. This right here is a baby. It's not a cat. It's not a parasite. This is a human being with a heartbeat, with its own DNA that is separate from my body. And this baby deserves to live, Abby Johnson told the crowd. I am grateful to Governor Kemp and the lawmakers for passing the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act to protect children. Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver said... The beating heart of a priceless unborn child should awaken the conscience of our nation to the violence of abortion. Well, the movie Unplanned has certainly gone a long way to doing just that. And then David French, uh, responding to how this has been covered in the broader media, writes this. Last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed perhaps the most impressive and comprehensive pro-life heartbeat bill in the nation. The law set to go into effect in 2020 not only bans abortion when the baby has a detectable human heartbeat, it declares the scientific, philosophical and theological truth that an unborn child is a natural person under state law. The law, like other state heartbeat bills, defies controlling Supreme Court authority and expect pro-abortion activists to immediately challenge it in court. I expected activist resistance and protest against the bill. I expected radical voices to urge corporate boycotts of Georgia. But I must confess that I did not expect to see a series of stories with lurid headlines and fundamentally mistaken premises to go viral and to stay viral for days. And he offers a sampling in the Business Insider. Women could get up to 30 years in prison for having a miscarriage under Georgia's harsh new abortion law. Slate magazine. Georgia just criminalized abortion. Women who terminate their pregnancies could receive life in prison. The week. Georgia's heartbeat bill, heartbeat abortion bill could imprison women for life. And Glamour magazine. Women who have an abortion in Georgia could be sentenced to life in prison. Well, the stories are viral in part because they rely on facially plausible reasoning. Since Georgia declares all unborn children to be natural persons, then, according to this, uh, these articles, Georgia's conventional murder statute must apply to women who self-terminate. If the woman has a miscarriage, a miscarriage rather, in part through her own neglect, then Georgia's second-degree murder statute applies, they argue. If a person helps another person obtain an abortion across state lines, then they are guilty of conspiracy under Georgia's statutes, they reason. But this is fundamentally wrong. The heartbeat bill did not repeal a number of Georgia criminal statutes that explicitly apply to abortions and unborn children. And it does not overrule controlling legal authority holding that these statutes bar prosecution of a woman for terminating her own pregnancy. Let's walk through these statutes and the key case. First, there is a specific code section that applies to unlawful abortions. That's Georgia Code Section 16. 12, 140, and it states, A, a person commits the offense of criminal abortion when, in violation of Code Section 16.12.141, he or she administers any medicine, drugs, or other substance, whatever, to any woman or when he or she uses any instrument or other means, whatever, upon any woman with intent to produce a miscarriage or abortion. B, a person convicted of the offense of criminal abortion shall be punished by imprisonment for not less than one... Uh, or no more than 10 years. Code section 16.12.141 is the exact section that was amended to include the heartbeat provision. If a person performs an abortion in violation of the heartbeat bill, then code section 16.12.140 applies. It does not impose life imprisonment on anybody, and Georgia courts have held that it does not apply to a woman who self-terminates only to third parties who perform an abortion. 
In Hillman versus Slate, or rather State, the Court of Appeals of Georgia rejected the prosecution's effort to imprison a woman who shot herself in the stomach to kill her unborn child. Interpreting Section 16.12.140, it said, This statute is written in the third person, clearly indicating that at least two actors must be involved. Accordingly, it does not criminalize a pregnant woman's actions in securing an abortion regardless of the means utilized. Second, the Georgia Code section that criminalizes feticide, such as uh, when a man attacks a woman for the purpose of killing her unborn baby, specifically states that nothing in this code section shall be construed to permit the prosecution of any woman with respect to her unborn child. Taken together, these statutes mean that a woman cannot be prosecuted either for aborting her own child or committing feticide. If you are still skeptical about the argument, perhaps you'll believe a Planned Parenthood uh, representative responding to a query from The Washington Post. The Post fact-checked claims that the Georgia bill criminalized women who terminate their own pregnancies and found those claims incorrect. Well, the news headlines and social media headlines that speculate about the bill's unintended consequences are, at the very least, not productive. At most, they're harmful. Planned Parenthood's Stacey Fox told The Post on Friday. House Bill 481 could not be used to successfully prosecute women, she argued. But if a woman had a miscarriage, she could be pulled into an investigation looking at whether someone performed an illegal abortion on her. That is a far, far cry from the headlines that I've already mentioned. But the truth isn't stopping the falsehood from rocketing around social media. Twitter is full of claims that Georgia wants to throw women in jail for life. But now you know these claims are false. Georgia law is clear. While abortionists can be prosecuted for performing unlawful abortions and an attacker can spend the rest of his life in in jail for killing a woman's unborn child, Georgia's heartbeat bill cannot be used to prosecute a woman for ending her own pregnancy. We're going to take a break here in just a moment for news and traffic at the top of the hour. I want to remind you that in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with William G. Highland, author of George Mason. It's a fascinating book, the subtitle, The Founding Father Who Gave Us the Bill of Rights. Well, the truth is much, much more, and his influence is much broader uh, than one might suppose. He will join us uh, in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with author William G. Highland. He has written George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. Well, the truth is he's given us much more than that and had um, significant influence in the founding of the Constitutional Republic we now uh, live in. So we'll uh, talk with him about that when he joins us in our next couple of segments. Looking forward to uh, to that conversation. Well, FCC Chairman uh, Ajit Pai on the agency's decision to ban China's um, uh, mobile from the U.S. market in the effort to take on robocalls says that the FCC is going to get more aggressive on robocall enforcement and he vows to return consumer sanity. Well, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, wants to give consumers their sanity back by taking very aggressive actions. That's a quote against robocallers. Again, Chairman Ajit Pai speaking on Fox Business on Monday. He believes it's getting out of control and is frankly He's sick of it, as are most Americans. I've demanded that phone companies adopt call authentication, uh, essentially a digital fingerprint for every phone call, he told uh, Stuart Varney, adding that the agency is taking every regulatory step they can to make sure consumers can once again rely on their phones. We're taking other steps to block spoofed numbers that have uh, 
numbers that might come from abroad but appear on your phone as if they were coming from your area code. And we're also going after the robocallers, imposing the largest fines in the FCC history on some of these robocallers, he uh, he warned. Well, each year, the FCC receives more than 200,000 complaints about, you guessed it, robocalls. In 2018, Americans received an estimated 47.8 billion of them, with more than 46 percent placed by scammers. In March, the Federal Trade Commission shut down four groups responsible for billions of robocalls. So, yay, good news. Well, there are ways that you can actually stop them now. Well, hello, please don't hang up. Did you know that you could save a bundle on... Well, this is a robocall, another automated telemarketer. Well, nowadays, robocalls make up to 50% of all phone calls that are made. Robocallers, according to one source, spammed us uh, 26.3 billion calls in 2018. Well, the moment you hear the electronic voice, everything stops. Your pulse quickens, your blood pressure rises. It doesn't matter what you were doing before. Maybe you were laughing at a joke. Maybe you were enjoying lunch. Perhaps you were watching your kid's Little League game. None of that matters now. You picked up that call and you regret it. Like um, all the other times, you want to shriek, don't call me again. I don't care what you are, who you are, or what you're selling, just go away. Well, your words fall on deaf ears because chances are there's no one to hear them. There is no one on the other end. And if you breathe a word, your voice may be recorded for future use. If you're wondering how your experience compares, there's a breakdown of how common these robocalls calls were, at least last year. Well... It's time to end these uh, robocalls for good. You've got the FCC on your side, but there are some things that you can do to find some relief, some uh, pointers to minimizing or eradicating some of these unwanted calls. Now, many robocallers uh, come up as anonymous on your caller ID, while most businesses and human beings come up as identifiable phone numbers. There's a red flag for you. Depending on your service, you may be able to access uh, uh, anonymous call rejection. Try this on your landline. Well, this service varies by carrier, and some carriers uh, charge extra, so make note of that. You can also join the National Do Not Call Registry list. Sometimes it works, sometimes not so much, but millions rejoiced when the Federal Trade Commission created the National Do Not Call Registry. And in a perfect world, signing up would stop telemarketers from calling you. Technically, it's illegal for telemarketers to call you if you are on that list. But the world isn't perfect and scanners or rather scammers don't follow the rules, nor do they care about this list. It's still smart to register your number as an added layer of protection, however, and you can uh, do that by calling 888-382-1222. That's 888-382-1222. You can Google it. You can also use your carrier tools to block unwanted calls, and some carriers have them, others don't. Uh, The four major carriers have uh, tools to identify, filter, and prevent these suspected nuisance numbers. from Calling or texting your phone most require an extra monthly fee to activate the caller ID service. Among them, AT&T, Verizon, uh, T-Mobile, Sprint, and I think that might be it. You might check your others. The fees are like a dollar ninety nine a month, two ninety nine somewhere in that um, that area. You can also use the best apps to block robocalls. Another way to uh, stop these nuisance calls on your smartphone is to. Uh, Uh, Use the call blocking apps. The apps can identify who is calling you and block unwanted calls that show up on your crowdsource spam and robocall list. Uh, Some of the top uh, apps are uh, NumRobo. That's N-O-M, NumRobo. TrueCaller is another one. Um, Just a couple, but you can, again, look them up. 
Uh, there is Haya uh, caller ID and block H I Y A. Another um, thing you might consider is the call control call blocker. Call blocker app automatically blocks spam calls. It calls from other numbers you don't want to hear from. You can block entire area codes like eight 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 if you're getting uh, tons of calls you don't want from a particular. Um, location. The call control app is uh, free. It's available for both Apple and Android gadgets. That's call control call blocker. Some phones uh, block robocalls automatically. You'll have to check to see if you have on Google's Android smartphones like the Pixels uh, and the old Nexus and Android one um, have built in spam protection. Check that out on your phone. You can also block individual phone numbers. That's available on iPhone and Android. You can set your phone to do not disturb. You can block every number except your most trusted contacts or favorites. You can turn on your iPhone and Android to, uh, Android phone. Uh, their built-in do not disturb mode. It's an extreme solution, but it definitely stops the unwanted calls, including robocalls, telemarketing calls, and spam calls. Again, available on both the iPhone and Android. And then there's the common sense that one hopes will ultimately prevail. This is the simplest solution. And lots of people try the low-tech approach to robocalls. If you receive a call from an unknown number or one that doesn't show up on the caller ID, don't answer. It's an important call. If it's an important call, the person will leave a message and you can get back to them. Millions of people are uh, unencumbered by robocalls and they don't give these uh, pests a second thought. Uh, speaking of calls, every week um, you're going to hear from them. Choose uh, one way or another to prevent them from getting through to you. Well, according to the Oregonian, Oregon Senate Republicans have issued a list of demands to Senate Democrats over the $2 billion tax package for education. By the way, they are on their, uh, what is it, their fifth day as uh, as no-shows in the Oregon Senate. The sergeant-at-arms of the Oregon Senate has a new regular duty these days besides assuring protocol and decorum, uh, followed by staffers and visitors searching the state capitol for Republican senators who have been staying away and have brought the legislative body business to a halt. The tactic by the minority Republicans is rare in the state, but it's been used uh, throughout history, sometimes creating comical scenarios. Abraham Lincoln once leapt out of a window in an attempt to deny a quorum when he was lawmaker in Illinois. In Washington, three decades ago, U.S. Senator Bob um, uh, Packwood uh, was carried uh, feet first into the Senate chamber after Democrats ordered the arrest of Republican senators who were denying a uh, quorum. The Oregon uh, standoff entered its fifth day today, caused by GOP senators' anger at a bill that raises taxes on some businesses to fund education. So Wednesday marked, uh, or I should say Wednesday marked the second day today, the fifth day uh, that Senate Republicans have not been present in large numbers in the Capitol. Their plan is to return uh, House Bill 3427 that establishes uh, funds for student success back to the committee to be reworked. Minority Leader Herman um, Batchheiger uh, told reporters on Monday that Republicans have been left out of the school funding conversation and that they are opposed to the proposed half a percent tax on businesses with sales over a million dollars. The proposed tax would fund school programs trying to boost student performance and decrease class size, saying Republicans have taken this dramatic stance because this is the only tool we have being in the super minority to draw attention to the injustices in this type of legislation. In addition to sending House Bill 3427 back to the committee, Republicans have listed several high profile bills that they would like the Democrats to kill According to the Oregonian, KGW has reached out to the staff of the Senate Minority Office, and they have uh, neither confirmed nor denied creating such a list of demands. But there you have it.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from uh, William G. Highland Jr. He's the author of George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, individual freedoms are under attack in America today. Too many have misinterpreted and even manipulated the words and intent of the Bill of Rights to fit their own agenda. The only way to know their true meaning is to understand their chief architect, George Mason. Now, Mason is arguably America's most unappreciated and underestimated founder of this republic. Now, historian William Highland Jr. gives his due, his due justice in George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. It's an in-depth biography. It digs into the history of the American Revolution and the founding of uh, to reclaim Mason for uh, uh, modern Americans at a time when the individual rights that Mason secured at the beginning of the Republic are under threat. Well, George Mason reveals the little-known truths about this forgotten founder uh, that made him a powerful contributor to the new nation. And we'll, we'll explore some of that. It really is uh, fascinating. My guest is William G. Hyland, Jr. He is a native of Virginia, received his B.A. from the University of Alabama and a J.D. from uh, Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. He has written extensively on legal topics, been a trial lawyer for more than 25 years and worked for the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. He currently resides in Florida, joins us today by phone to talk about his uh, masterpiece, George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Georgina. This is really fascinating. I think most of us, if we were asked, do you recognize the name George Mason? We would recognize the name. It has a familiar ring to it, but have very little uh, understanding of who he was and the role he played in the early days of this republic. What motivated you to write uh, about this uh, founder, if you will, um, at this particular time? Well, you know, when I wrote my first book uh, about Thomas Jefferson, I learned um, who the influences were on uh, Jefferson and who his mentor was. And his mentor was George Mason. And I had not known a lot about George Mason, but the more I discovered about him, I found that his political writings were some of the most important in our history. For example, he gave us the most famous words in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone thinks those those were Jefferson's words, but they were written about a month before the Declaration of Rights, Declaration of Independence, when Mason wrote his Virginia Declaration of Rights, and Jefferson borrowed those terms and was really the blueprint for the Declaration of Independence. In fact, he said of George Mason, he called him the wisest man of his generation, which is saying something when you're talking about uh, the individual who penned the Declaration of Independence and while not quoting George Mason directly, found the Virginia Declaration of Rights uh, was the most influential document in his writing of our Declaration of Independence. Well, if Jefferson was a genius, and I think he was both personally and politically, George Mason was a near genius because he did not have the same academic background. He was not... He did not go to college like Jefferson. He did not go to law school like Jefferson and Madison. 
he was self-taught in his uncle's 1,700-volume library, and he became one of the most respected men uh, in the Virginia colony and in America. He was known as a constitutional theorist, and everyone respected his writings. Now, how is it that we know so little about George Mason? Is it because his name isn't on, uh, he wasn't a signator of the, the Constitution, that he uh, declined to to sign on because he did not feel there were elements uh, securing the people's rights that were strong enough there? Why don't we know more about him? Well, you know, he was a very, very private man, unlike uh, Jefferson and Washington, who later, you know, became president. Um, they were bo- both very public men. George Mason was a very private person. His wife died at the age of 39, leaving him uh, a widower with nine children to take care of and Mm. a growing farm and plantation. So he was a very reluctant statesman, but he never sought the limelight, um, kind of like Jefferson, Madison, and Washington did. In fact, he advised his sons to, uh, to live a life of relative obscurity, which he successfully did. Uh, himself, although having a uh, significant uh, impact on our nation's founding and certainly the founding documents. You know, his Virginia Declaration of Rights really should be one of the most fundamental documents that we read and teach in both you know middle school, high school, and college, because that really was the blueprint for the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. George Mason actually wrote the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. He wrote the Fourth Amendment, the right to be secure in your homes from searches and seizures. That document that he wrote was basically the blueprint for the first ten amendments of the Constitution, and that's why he refused to sign the Constitution in 1787, because it did not contain a Bill of Rights, and he thought it should. By understanding or better understanding George Mason uh, and the influence that he uh, wielded during his time, will that help us better understand the Constitution, which is being reinterpreted or disregarded or considered a living document that is not reliable in in its uh, plain language, but has to be reinterpreted according to our times? How might understanding George Mason um, help us better understand and interpret the Constitution? Well, George Mason was important um, for one important reason, and that was he was a champion of individual liberty and individual rights. He wrote in his Virginia Declaration of Rights that all power is vested and consequently derived from the people. He vastly um, believed in individual rights individual liberties, and a very small federal government. And I think that really goes to the heart of kind of our debate uh, today in today's government. Hmm. Well, we know that individual freedoms and rights are under uh, attack today, uh, perhaps more vigorously than ever before in our nation's history. How can we, like uh, George Mason, defend those um, individual freedoms and rights uh, that we are on the uh, the verge of either losing altogether or certainly watering down to the degree that they are no longer what they were originally intended to be. 
You know, he was a big believer in states' rights and giving more power back to the states away from the federal government. And that's where he lost his friendship, actually, with George Washington. Because George Washington and Madison thought a strong federal government was the way to go. And Jefferson and Mason thought individual liberties, individual rights, states' rights was the power of the people. And he also believed really, truly, um, that the power of the press was, he wrote, was one of the greatest bulwarks of liberty. So I think he would be really shocked and appalled when, you know, these big conglomerates like Facebook start to delete certain accounts and basically censor um, free speech. We're talking this afternoon with the author of George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. William Highland Jr. is my guest. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. In the book, you're going to find that the Declaration of Independence was not Jefferson's original idea. He adapted it directly from Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. That James Madison, the supposed father of the Bill of Rights, strenuously opposed their addition to the Constitution while Mason uh, avidly insisted on it. And the original declarations of our God-given rights were forged from Mason's bookish knowledge of political history and philosophy and his loyalty to liberty. This the man who did not have the formal education of many of his peers and yet was considered brilliant by those very peers. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, the title of the book, George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. The book is published by Regnery History, a fascinating read. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we are continuing a conversation with uh, William Highland Jr., the author of George Mason, the founding father who gave us the Bill of Rights. It really is a fascinating part of our history to sort of pull back the curtain to see who influenced the major influencers whose names we are familiar with. And George Mason is certainly at the very top of that list. Now, it's interesting to me that um, uh, people, history remembered him as a second-class founding father. Is that primarily because he declined to sign the Constitution or that he was not uh, the, the politician vying for the attention of the people in his place uh, in history? Why? How would you explain the fact that he is considered, uh, perhaps at that time, and, and it's certainly in our own, as a second-class uh, founding father? You know, he really um, was considered um, kind of a second-class founding father by historians, and I think that is really an error. Um, He's noted only for, you know, refusing to sign the Constitution. He was one of three men who decided not to sign the Constitution based on his principles, that there was no Declaration of Rights, no Bill of Rights. But after he lost that battle and lost at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he kind of withdrew from uh, public limelight. His political career was over. In fact, they tried to appoint him as a senator, and he declined that offer and basically retired after the Constitutional Convention. But he never gave up his hope and his belief that the Constitution should have a Bill of Rights. And eventually he convinced Madison and Washington uh, to amend it and have the first ten amendments to the Bill of Rights. How did he wield his influence? Was it personal relationship? Was it through his writing? How was his influence most keenly felt by those who were in positions of power and influence? 
it was his writings when um, he lost at the Constitutional Convention. Virginia had a very famous uh, also state Constitutional Convention, and he teamed up with Patrick Henry, who was a voracious um, kind of defender of Mason and for a Bill of Rights. So both of those uh, patriots, their voices were heard, and they ultimately convinced both Madison and Washington that a Declaration of Rights needed to be spelled out, needed to be in writing, because both Washington and Madison thought it was superfluous that it was assumed in the states, but both Madison, but I'm sorry, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and Mason all wanted a written document, and that became the Bill of Rights. Now, the fact that um, George Mason is so little known today, why do you think it's important? Why should we care about him, and how might our understanding of uh, his history and its impact on our own uh, will help us to defend the rights that we are seeing challenged in the 21st century? Well, you know, America was woven together by really three pieces of political paper, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And George Mason basically wrote the blueprint for all three of those documents. If you read the Virginia Declaration of Rights that he wrote 12 years before the Constitution, you'll see that each of these rights is spelled out, the right of free speech, the right of free assembly, the right of free religion, the exercise. Those were all Mason's rights that became the Bill of Rights. It's such a fascinating history that we know so a little of. Now, you've touched on this, but which individual rights would you say Mason was most passionate about? I think um, the freedom of the press. You know, he called that the great bulwark of liberty, and it can never be restrained but by a despotic government. So I believe that he would think the freedom of the press, freedom of the of expression, would be the most fundamental uh, to our country and to individual liberty. Now, he also warned against the, the dangerous uh, growth of the federal government, especially an overpowerful executive branch and an overweening judiciary. Uh, talk a little bit about his views on the subject and what he might uh, make of uh, where we stand today, where executive authority in particular and the, um, the use of the judiciary for, by a lazy legislature to accomplish what they cannot do by persuasion um, has produced that uh, that very scenario. Well, you're exactly right. He was very wary of uh, a too powerful chief executive being a president, even though he knew his good friend and neighbor, George Washington, was probably going to be elected the first president. But his idea, Mason's um, really idea about the presidency was he thought there would be too much power and it would devolve into a kingship, which they had just broken up to. So he had an idea that he was not going to have one chief executive be president, but a three council member be kind of an executive committee, executive presidents. So he had the idea that not one president, but three members of an executive committee should run the country. As far as the judiciary, he thought that they should should be very restrained. They should interpret, but not have too much power um, over the 
any one of the other branches of government. One of his main things in the Constitution and the Declaration of Rights was the separation of power, each of them being equal branches of government. Now, this is somewhat speculative to impose uh, George Mason of his time on the 21st century, our time. What do you think he might make of uh, how things are are humming in the 21st century with regard um, to these three branches of government? Well, you know, he always believed that the House of Representatives should be the most powerful uh, branch in Congress. He believed that that was the House of the people, Mm -hmm. and the people had the individual rights. So he would probably think the Senate and the executive branch had become way too powerful, and he should probably give more power back to the House of Representatives, which basically he did. You know, he actually uh, wrote the words into the impeachment clause, high crimes and misdemeanors. Those were George Mason's words that he put into the impeachment clause for the House of Representatives. When you were doing your research for the book, were there things that surprised you about um, his history, his impact, his thinking about this uh, this republic of ours? Well, not only about the thinking of the republic, but the man himself. I mean, he was just an incredible person. Like I said, his wife died at the age of 39. He had to raise nine children by himself during a war, by the way. Um, So he was just an incredible person and an incredibly self-taught and self-read person without having going to college. And he really was just, like I said, if Jefferson was a near genius, he was absolutely a genius, both in his political thought and his political writings. He also uh, coined the famous term of uh, aid and comfort for treason. He defined treason in his constitutional convention document in the Virginia uh, Convention. So he gave some of the most famous words in our document, but they are not attributed to Mason. Do you think he'd be surprised that attention is being focused on him uh, once again and the significant uh, weighty impact that he's had on this constitutional republic? I think he would be. Um, Like I said, he never sought the limelight. He was a very, very private person. He always thought that he would love to go back to his farm, his books, and his family. And his son wrote uh, basically a memoir of him and told of how he was just very much reclusive, very much happy and cloistered at Gunston Hall, which was his beautiful mansion on the Potomac River. And that's where he was most happy with his books, with his family. I think it's important to also mention that the French Revolution, which occurred in 1789, the drafting of the Declaration of the Rights of Man also drew heavily on Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. So it had influence not only here, but certainly abroad as well. It had influence on almost every constitution and declaration of rights written after 1776. Uh, It's just an incredible document. The Virginia Declaration of Rights not only was the antecedent to the Declaration of Independence, but to our own constitution. If it was not for Mason, we probably would not have the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights. 
Absolutely fascinating. It's an excellent book. I would highly recommend it. And I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Again, the title of the book, George Mason, The Founding Father Who Gave Us the Bill of Rights by William G. Highland Jr. Uh, In his um, uh, opening of the book, he writes, For in the end, his sober judgment, deep knowledge, personal maturity, and principled convictions are woven into the fabric of the Constitution and the country's DNA. George Mason remains one of the wisest statesmen America has ever known, or known little of. Fascinating book. It's about, oh, 500 pages, about 500 pages, but worth every page to read. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for the second time since Easter, the church in Burkina Faso uh, has suffered a terrorism attack during a Sunday service. This time, the target was a Catholic church in Dablo, where the priest and five worshipers were killed. This prompted a series of uh, deja vu headlines among global media outlets as the death toll matches last month's attack at the Assemblies of God Church in um, uh, that community where the pastor and five worshipers were also killed. The assailants again arrived on motorcycles. They interrupted the morning service. They started firing as the congregation tried to flee. This is according to um, the mayor who reported to the uh, French press. Uh, They ordered the women and children to clear the scene before executing six men, including the priest, and setting fire to the church according to the Burkina Information Agency. Well, the martyred priest was 34 years old. He was a humble person, obedient and full of love. He loved his parishioners. That's what a local bishop uh, said, uh, the Vatican's news agency reported. Well, the landlocked West African nation has suffered hundreds of attacks by jihadists in recent years. But last month's attack on the Pentecostal congregation was considered the first upon a worship, a house of worship. The attack this weekend, yesterday, the attack on the Catholic congregation is now the second. Burkina Faso is uh, is approximately 60 percent Muslim, 25 percent Christian, with Catholics outnumbering Protestants four to one. The attack in Dablo came the day before the Catholic bishops across the Western Africa were to gather in Burkina Faso's capital for the third plenary assembly. Today, more than ever, the Church of West Africa, through the bishops, wants to show the world that the Christians of Burkina are not and will never be alone in this fight against religious extremism. That's a quote from the leader of the Society for African Missions. Uh, The fight will be won because we are aware of the fact that evil, whatever its uh, content, will not have the last word in our lives. But we cannot face this challenge if our governments are not involved in a concrete and effective way, end quote. Now, Christianity Today reported last month how the Assemblies of God was reeling from the um, new turning point in terrorism in the nation. It's not only the church in uh, this particular community that's been attacked. All the values of tolerance, forgiveness, and love that have always led our country have been hurt. That's a quote from the president of the Federation of Evangelical Churches and Missions in Burkina Faso uh, in an April 30th statement. The freedom of worship consecrated by our fundamental laws, the Constitution, have been flouted. Well, Burkina Faso suffered 136 violent incidents linked to jihadists in 2018. That's up from 24 the previous year, according to a report by the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. The Vatican's news service noted in March how the killing and kidnapping of priests and other Catholic workers was on the rise in West Africa as well. United Nations officials recently warned of an unprecedented rise in sophisticated armed attacks 
in this area where ISIS-inspired armed groups threaten to destabilize longstanding traditional methods of community-based conflict resolution. Violence is spreading in Mali and Niger, as well as Burkina Faso, and um, risks spilling over into other West African countries. This has led to a five-fold rise in the displacement of the local population in the 12 months, the last 12 months, who have seen more than 330,000 people leave their homes in addition to 100,000 refugees. That's according to the UN News. Well, the nation's Catholic bishops had asked congregants to spend the month of February praying for peace and um, and cohension. Um, the uh, bishops stated at their January meeting that mounting violence was revealing of a society thread that uh, a social thread rather that has been weakened despite the legendary traditions of living together among all social components in that area. Well, last summer, the archbishop um, and cardinal told the Catholic media that for us Christians faced with the inhumane violence uh, our, um, uh, and to fight back as a matter of priority is prayer to God. That is their response. Uh, just another example of the persecution of believers in various places around the world. Meanwhile, one good news story, Asia Bibi has finally escaped the country where her life was at risk for nearly a decade. The Pakistani Christian uh, will join her family in Canada, according to reports from media and her attorney. Uh, Asia Bibi finally left Pakistan for uh, Canada months after escaping a death sentence. The Pakistani Christian will live with her family in safety again. Well, in Pakistan's most watched persecution case, she spent more than eight years in prison on blasphemy charges and faced the death penalty. Well, after she was exonerated last year, she couldn't uh, couldn't live freely in her home country since she was at risk of attacks by rogue clerics calling for vigilante justice. More than 50 people charged with blasphemy have been murdered there. Bibi now in her 50s is the mother of five uh, Two of her daughters have already moved to Canada for asylum. The U.S. Secretary of State for the United States, Mike Pompeo, said he wishes Bibi all the best after being safely reunited with her family. Aid to the Church in Need, or ACN, which advocated for her, as did many others around the globe, stated that while they celebrate for her and her family, they acknowledge the ongoing threats. Today is also a day tinged with great sadness as we remember those others who are still incarcerated or unjustly accused under the blasphemy laws today, as well as those who sacrificed so much for Asia Bibi. That was a quote from Neville Kirk Smith. Uh, the U.K. National Director for the Aid in Church in Need. Our prayers, he went on to say, and our work will continue uh, in commitment to help all those who are unjustly accused of radical funda- uh, by radical fundamentalists and who cannot practice their Christian faith freely. Her case, which uh, made it all the way to the country's Supreme Court, stemmed from an alleged incident in 2009 when she got into a dispute with two Muslim co-workers who refused to take water from her since she was a Christian. Afterwards, she had been accused of blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad, and the rest of the story has since become quite well known. Well, taking a look at the program of the remainder of this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Kevin Palau. There's a show and tell event coming up. We'll tell you more about that, but we'll try to get the latest on how Luis Palau is doing, the movie that came out, the book that's coming out, much to talk about. Kevin Palau will join me in studio tomorrow on the program. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Jen Pollock, Michael, who is the author of Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of and in an either or world. That's coming up on uh, on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. 
And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.